Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, U.S. Supreme Court Preview, features four Minnesota law faculty experts previewing the U.S. Supreme Court case docket for the 2022-23 term, which started on October 3rd. The faculty panelists include Elizabeth Bentley, Alan Rosenstein, David Schultz, and Liliana Zaragoza. Professor Bentley kicks off the program with a brief introduction and overview of the court and its recently changed composition, followed by a panel discussion. An audience Q&A follows their case docket preview. This event was recorded on October 3rd, 2022. A video replay of the lecture is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to our Supreme Court preview for the October 2022 term. Um, we have a lot of material to cover today, so I'm going to do a few quick introductions and then just set the stage a bit and then dive right into a number of the cases that the court's going to hear this year to give some perspectives. We're hoping to reserve somewhere around 10 minutes at the end for questions. So if you have them, um, hold on to those and hopefully we can get to as many as we can. So my name is Elizabeth Bentley. I'm a visiting assistant professor of law here at the law school and also the director of the new civil rights appellate clinic that's going to get started next spring semester. Um, I joined the law school after uh, working for a few years in appellate practice and appellate and Supreme Court practice at a law firm here in Minneapolis. And before that, um, I served as a law clerk to Justice Sonia Sotomayor at the U.S. Supreme Court during the October 17 to 18 term. Um, I also, just before coming to the law school, spent um, about six weeks working for Senator Klobuchar during the confirmation hearings of now Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, sitting to my left is Liliana Zaragoza, who is an associate clinical professor of law at the law school and the director of the Racial Justice Law Clinic, which just got rolling this year. She joined the law school after working at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, um, first as the John Payton Appellate and Supreme Court Advocacy Fellow, and later as assistant counsel at the LDF. Uh, before that, she had a Skadden Fellowship with the New York Legal Assistance Group, and she had clerked for Third Circuit Judge Felipe Restrepo and Southern District of New York Judge Victor Marrero. Uh, next to Liliana is Professor David Schultz, who's a visiting professor here at the University of Minnesota Law School and the Distinguished University Professor of Political Science and Legal Studies at Hamlin University. He's a national expert on election law, professional ethics, state constitutional law, and eminent domain and land use law, and the former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Public Affairs Education. And he's on the editorial boards of the Journal of Public Integrity, the Election Law Journal, the RUDN Journal of Public Administration, and the Journal of Politics and Law and Social Science, Social St Science Studies. Um, thank you for being here today. And um, at the end of the table here, we have Professor Alan Rosenstein, who's an associate professor of law here at the law school. Uh, Alan has previously served as an attorney advisor in the, law, in the Office of Law and Policy at the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. 
and also a special assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland. And prior to that, he clerked for Fourth Circuit Judge Harvey Wilkinson III. So thank you all for being here. Um, you know, just as we sit here today, today's the very first day of the October 2022 term. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments this morning. There's a lot going on at the court, and it's a pretty intense time with a lot of change happening. So first, we obviously have a new Supreme Court Justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Justice Jackson brings a depth of experience and perspective to the court uh, that's important on many levels. So first, she bring, uh, brings important expertise that the court is currently lacking. She's the first former public defender to serve on the court. She'll replace Justice Breyer as the only justice with experience in the US Sentencing Commission. And she joins Justice Sotomayor as the only justice who also has trial court experience, um, experience being a trial court judge. Beyond that, she brings important in a unique perspective to the court. She is the, court, the first black woman to serve on the US Supreme Court, which is a huge milestone in the court's history. She's a working parent. She's the child of school teachers. She's a family member of individuals who've served in law enforcement. Now, of course, her appointment is not expected to bring about a huge shift in the power dynamics on the court, but the long-term impact on, of her presence on the court, in my view, is immeasurable. We all benefit from having a court that is more representative of our country. And that's especially so because in a minute, as I'm going to discuss, the court's power and legitimacy derives from the public acceptance of its opinions. If more people in the country see themselves at the court in some shape or form, my hope is that it will drive them to engage more fully in the court's work and that it may, over time at least, help improve the public confidence in the court. So turning to this issue of public confidence, it's another area where we're seeing some change at the court. Um, the public confidence in the court is at a historic low, hovering somewhere around 25%, depending on what poll is you're looking at. And as I mentioned, this matters because the court's legitimacy derives from the public acceptance of its decisions. As Alexander Hamilton famously said in the Federalist Papers number 78, the judiciary has no influence over either sword or the purse. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend on the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. So a lot has contributed to the drop in confidence in the court, including the recent decision from last term in Dobbs, which overruled land, historic landmark precedent Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. A little aside here, to the extent you're interested in those in the Dobbs decision and the kind of impact of that decision, there's another event happening in this room tomorrow over lunch hour, so come back for that. We're not going to dig into that decision um, in depth today. But um, you know, there are also other decisions at the court that have been curtailing precedent, um, limiting the government's ability to address challenging issues of our time, like gun violence and the climate crisis, and issues that the courts um, delivered on its what's called shadow docket. Um, but the big picture there is that they're rendering important decisions without hearing briefing, having full briefing, oral argument, and oftentimes without even writing a full decision explaining its reasoning so that the public can understand what's happening. Now, some individuals in the public and in the legal academy view these decisions as achieving some kind of political or policy-oriented outcome at the court, while others see them as bringing the court back in line with original conceptions of the Constitution, which in their view actually enhances the legitimacy of the court in our constitutional structure. Okay, this goes to an age-old debate about the role of the court 
in general in our society about appropriate methods of interpreta interpretation, about the meaning and the uh, principle of stare decisis, and the role that policy and politics play in the court's decision making. We could have an entire presentation on that issue alone, um, but so I just want to kind of flag those competing issues going on in all of the court's decisions, many of the court's decisions these days, and um, you know, so that you can keep an eye on that dynamic as we go through our, um, our discussion today and see how the court kind of renders its decisions over the course of the term. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Liliana, or Professor Zaragoza, who's going to um, discuss our first cases. Thanks, Bets. Um, so hello, everyone. My name is Liliana Zaragoza, um, and Bets already introduced me, so I won't talk about that. Um, but so, you know, I did wanna chime a little bit on, you know, riff on the fact that the legitimacy of the court is in question, the kinds of decisions that the court is looking at in the fall, you know, there's a lot of anticipation from a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. But, and although we're not diving into Dobbs um, too much today, it is relevant, right, that in Dobbs, um, the court just overturned uh, about 50 years of precedent, right? And so with that, we turn to the affirmative action cases where, you know, let's be frank, pl uh, the plaintiff appellees, um, or excuse me, appellants, are, are hoping to do just that, right? Um, so again, we have a case against Harvard College's uh, scheme of, of admissions and against the University of North Carolina. And so as you can see, one school is public, one school is private, and I won't get into it too much, but um, basically the question uh, presented with respect to UNC is whether it's admissions policy, which considers race as a factor um, violates the 14th Amendment. And then with respect to Harvard, the question is about Title VI, but Title VI is pretty much interpreted in lockstep with the 14th Amendment. Um, and so those cases had actually been joined. They were severed, probably because Justice Jackson joined the court and she was on the Harvard Board of Supervisors. But to get into the meat of these cases, right? So UNC and Harvard, um, both consider race in terms of admissions, um, but it's it's part of, of a whole package, right? Um, and the district courts in both cases determined that, um, so again, because we're talking about race, and I don't know if you all have covered strict scrutiny yet, I know some of you are one else, um, but in order for their admission schemes, which consider race to be deemed constitutional, um, there has to be a compelling state interest, or, or rather a narrowly tailored policy um, that, that furthers a compelling state interest. Um, and courts time and time again, um, since Sweat v. Painter, and most importantly and relevant here, um, in Bakke, a 1978 decision, said quotas and precise numbers are unconstitutional. But considering race, um, in terms of holistic admissions, right? When you, as you consider whole persons, does um, you know does meet this test of strict scrutiny? Of course, it's a compelling interest to make sure that students who are students of color don't feel alienated. It's important for you know the exchange of ideas that people not all be the same, right? Um, and this isn't just as a matter of race, but in terms of um, you know where you are, what socioeconomic status you are, whether you're queer, whether um, any number of things, right? But having different perspectives in the classroom is an important goal. So Bakke in 19, was decided in 1978, and 
you know, you might be wondering wh why I'm going back so far, but that's not quite 50 years ago. Um, but this has been, uh, for, for nearly 50 years, the court um, has said time and time again that these holistic admissions programs, and there are different variations, um, are constitutional. So in 2003, Grutter and Gratz, um, or Grutter versus Bollinger and Gratz versus Bollinger were a set of cases against the University of Michigan um, for, again, the consideration of race in their law school and their undergrad. And again, the court said, you're considering race holistically, you're considering whole persons, constitutional. In I'm forgetting the years, but we had Fisher I and Fisher II against the University of Texas. Um, and again, um, and, and, this, and at this point it's relevant that Justice Kennedy was there and you know, now he is not there and you know, well, it'll, it remains to be seen what will happen. But again, these programs are constitutional. But going to Grutter and Gratz, Justice O'Connor um, famously said, you know, this, these programs at Michigan are constitutional, but we may not need to consider race anymore in 25 years. Um, and so we're not quite at 25 years, but, you know, it's, it's, it's clear, I think, <laughs> that, you know, as students for fair admissions, the plaintiff organizations in these cases, they, they saw that number, they saw that, that opportunity, right? And, and also now with the Dobbs Court, there may be an opportunity here for them to finally end affirmative action. It's been a very long-standing campaign, um, and in this particular case, it is worth noting that um, Students for Fair Admissions, uh, it's an organization that was started by Ed Bloom, um, and that's the same, um, those folks represented Abigail Fisher in those twin cases um, uh, just a few years ago. And so this is, this is again, this is, um, sort of like the campaign to end Roe v. Wade, right? That this is an effort that has been longstanding. Um, and so we will see. The district court uh, decisions had pretty extensive findings, right? Um, and there were, um, ah, I do want to note, of course, because I do teach racial justice law and critical race theory um, within that clinic, that importantly in Baki, in Grutter, in Gratz, in Fisher, all of the plaintiffs were white. In these particular cases, um, it's students for fair admissions, but they're making arguments on behalf of Asian students. And of course, Asian students are not a monolith, um, and importantly, in both Harvard and UNC, um, there were some pretty, uh, there, there were very vocal multiracial coalitions that included Asian American students that said, well, no, actually, you know, Vietnamese students, Filipino students, Hmong students here, right, in Minnesota are very underrepresented at, at the U. Um, and so at different schools, there are different needs. And so there's been also a lot of discussion about, you know, not creating a wedge between Asian Americans and other groups. And so that's, I think that's an important element to discuss about these cases. Um, and it's important, and my final note before I pass it along, is um, that in UNC, the Supreme Court actually granted students the opportunity to present oral argument um, under the theory that UNC itself cannot properly um, present the experience and arguments that students would have, right? Because students are sometimes also alienated by those institutions as well. And so we'll hear oral argument from counsel for the students. Yeah? That's cool. Thanks so much. Yes. David, why don't we turn to you? Wonderful, good. Thank you very much for having me. 
And I think there is probably two truths that we can distill from American history. One, we have a problem with race, and two, we have a problem with partisanship. And they join together in the two cases that I want to talk about today, which are dealing with election law types of issues. And more specifically, they deal with variations of the issue of what we call well, malapportionment or gerrymandering and so forth. And just to give us a little bit of a background before I get to the two cases here, is take us back to the early part of the 19th century. There was a person named um, Elbridge Gerry, um, who was the Massachusetts governor. And there were some district lines that were being drawn. I believe they were state district lines for a legislature. And a newspaper said they looked kind of funny. They looked like a salamander. And thus, they combined Jerry with the word salamander and got the word what? Gerrymandering. So there's kind of a, I would say, a euphemistic or let us say, um, perhaps a not so flattering term that says that we have a problem occasionally with gerrymandering. With that, we should also think about something else that has happened in the United States. From the latter part of, let's say, the 19th century through about World War II, we gradually moved from being a, a rural nation to an urban nation. And think of yourself as being a rural legislator. You have all this political power at your hands because of what? The population is located there. And over time, especially during the few, first few decades of the 20th century, people move away from the rural areas or immigrants come to the United States, and the urban areas are heavily populous. Now, would you be a really generous and benevolent state legislator and say, heck, um, after the census has been done, and we have a requirement in the Constitution to do a census every 10 years, would you be a benevolent and really nice, generous state legislator and say, I think we'll fairly draw the lines in such a way that it'll follow the population flows to the urban areas and it'll therefore weaken my power as a, as a rural legislator. Now, if you believe that, I'm from New York, we would say, I have a bridge to sell you at this point. <laughs> it didn't happen. And so by the time we get to around World War II, right afterwards, there is a challenge being brought before the US Supreme Court, a challenge that says that questions of, of reapportionment or malapportionment or gerrymandering, whatever term we want to use, violates the Equal Protection Clause. And in a famous case, Colgra versus Green, Justice Frankfurter says, matters of redistricting are not an issue for the courts to handle says that this is a matter for the state legislatures to address because it's their job to draw the district lines for, for both um, congressional seats and for legislative seats. We're not going to venture into what he called the political thicket. A few years later, in Gormillion versus Lightfoot, the court, though, does entertain a challenge to racial gerrymandering, where a state basically drew the lines in such a way to try to disempower people of color. And that was a challenge under the 15th Amendment. But in that case, the court said that use, use of race for the purposes of redistricting um, is unconstitutional. I'm assuming if you're two and three L's, at some point you have read Baker versus Carr, or if you're one L's, at some point you'll be talking about Baker versus Carr. And in Baker, the court said, guess what? Matters of redistricting are justiciable. They are cases that we can hear. And so long as we can craft um, manageable standards for resolving the dispute, we will hear these kind of cases. Thus, Baker overturns Colgrove. There's a story then, a variety of cases um, come right afterwards in terms of addressing redistricting. For our purposes, there are three types of questions regarding redistricting. One is what I'm going to call the numerical issue. 
Two, it's going to be the, the, the racial issue. Third is the partisan gerrymandering. For the most part, the court has been able to address the numerical issue with a standard. This is the famous standard of one person, one vote, um, Westbury versus Sanders, Reynolds versus Sims. We're not even going to worry about that here today. What we're worried about today with these two cases are questions first of racial gerrymandering and two of partisan gerrymandering. In terms of racial gerrymandering, it would take, all, all four of us are going to be in the same situation of trying to explain too much background too quickly here, but we would be talking about the Voting Rights Act. We would be talking about how the 1965 Voting Rights Act was put into place as a way of trying to address racial discrimination in terms of voting. Um, what we would learn from looking at the Voting Rights Act, there are several critical provisions, including Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which addresses the issue of, of let's say, um, um, voter dilution. At what point are changes in voting practices hurting or otherwise impacting the rights to vote for people of color? In 1986, in a case called Thornburg versus Jingles, the Supreme Court outlined a test, which I really can't talk about too much today, but essentially said in that case that in many situations, um, if you could find a scenario where it would be possible to draw district lines in such a way that you could put together and create what we call a majority-minority district, that is, draw district lines in a way that we could cobble together um, uh, enough voters, of, of persons of color, and they're voting together in a block, there's an obligation to do so. Subsequent to the Jingles case, a lot more litigation occurred. Again, I can't go into all the detail. Cases such as Shaw versus Reno, where the Supreme Court said that the drawing of district maps in ways that look so irregular um, that the only way they could be drawn is on the basis of race. The court got very close to striking down parts of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it did eventually strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act um, in Shelby County versus Holder, as well as last year in Bronovich versus the Democratic National Committee. Again, I can't go into all the details here. But what we have in terms of Merrill versus Milligan is that after the 2020 census, the Alabama legislature drew congressional lines for its districts. And it has... Um, if I remember correctly here, it has seven districts in the state, and it drew one district in terms of what they would call a majority-minority district. However, the African-American population is 26%, and a challenge was brought claiming and saying that, listen, you have the ability to be able to draw a second seat, given the population density of people of color in the state, you should draw a second seat um, that's, that's a majority-minority one. And this is really what the core of the challenge is at this point, is that um, did the state of Alabama err um, in, in, not dry, in not providing for a second majority-minority seat um, when it drew its districting plan you know, back in 2021 after the 2020 census? And why this is important, it's a fight over the jingles test. It's a fight over, over really the scope of where race gets to be used in redistricting. And those who are challenging the plan are arguing that the only way that the state of Alabama would be entitled to be able to, cons to create or required to do a second majority-minority seat if it could somehow show for reasons independent of race that it needed to draw a second seat along these lines here. So this is, following up on what you're saying and talked about before, this is another case in which the issue of race is going to be central to, to what the court's doing this year. 
And there's been many people who have argued for years, much in the same way that they've argued in the areas of admissions, that we should have what? Race neutral or colorblind um, admissions policies. Um, we should have race neutral or something approaching colorblind lines in terms of redistricting. So that's our first case. The second case involves partisan gerrymandering. And again, just going back a little bit in time to 1986, the court ruled in a famous case, Davis versus Bandemir, that in theory, the use of, use of partisanship, the considerations of party for the purposes of drawing district lines is a justiciable controversy of which we're willing to entertain um, a lawsuit. But the court said in that case, yeah, we're willing to entertain it, but we need to figure out what's the manageable standard. How do we know what has been a partisan gerrymander? And for about 30 years after that decision, the court went through several other decisions trying to figure out, well, I don't want to kind of do a takeoff of Potter Stewart's you know, famous line about obscenity. You know, we know when we see it. But the court was struggling with exactly that type of a question. How do we know when we've had a, a partisan gerrymander? And finally, uh, about two years ago, three years ago, in Rucho versus Common Cause, the Supreme Court said, that's it, we're done. We no longer think that, that partisan gerrymandering is an issue that should be before the federal courts. It's non-justiciable. Leave us alone. You know, don't bother us, et cetera, et cetera. This is where now the Moore case comes in. Because after Rucho, the state of North Carolina, the Supreme Court in North Carolina, under its own constitution, reached a different conclusion and said that partisan gerrymandering violates, potentially violates our state constitution and it is a justiciable matter under our state constitution. Well, the North Carolina Supreme Court, actually the North Carolina courts um, struck down the 2021 North Carolina districting plan, arguing that it was in fact a partisan gerrymander. In response to that, and I won't have to go into all the reasons for the state constitutional claims here. In response, um, the people who are challenging the North Carolina decision are raising what's called the independent state legislative theory. And specifically, what they're arguing is that Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 of the Constitution precludes the judiciary in a state from being able to strike down redistricting plans. And specifically, if I can just read the, that section for a second here, they're, they're using this passage here. The time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be, shall be prescribed, pardon me, prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. It's that phrase, by the legislature thereof, that's critical. What's being argued? is that the Constitution explicitly says only legislatures can address redistricting types of issues. And that for the courts to step in, a state court to step in, even to declare that a redistricting plan is violation of a state constitution violates the US Constitution. This is an important case, a tremendously important case, because not only does it address the question, I would argue, of whether or not state courts can intervene to address partisan gerrymandering, but even more so, I would argue, if the Supreme Court were to accept the independent state legislature type of argument, this would have huge implications for what? The state courts stepping at all in, in terms of any type of redistricting types of issues. And the reason why I mention this, because it then would potentially take us back to what? A pre-Colgrove versus Green era. 
that not, not only would the federal courts be precluded from entering the, re, the, the political thicket when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, but this could potentially take state courts out of, quote, the political thicket when it comes to not just partisan gerrymandering, but potentially all types of gerrymandering. Thank you. Um, Lillian, did you want to jump in? At, I know the um, I'll be very, very quickly. The only reason I want to jump in, and thank you so much, um, David, is because, so I worked at uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. My friend, Duell Ross, is arguing Merrill versus Milligan tomorrow. Wish I could be there, um, but you can actually hear um, the argument live. Um, I don't know if we have the link to share, but um, do we? Maybe we can put it in, in the follow-up email, but it's also just if you go to the Supreme Court's website, their homepage, and you scroll yep. down tomorrow like at 10 a.m. Eastern, so 9 a.m. here, you can click on the link to live stream oral, or just the oral argument, um, the audio of it. They don't have... <coughs> Yeah, and then just a couple of quick kind of practical points as, you know, the litigator um, within that case. Um, so usually the way it works in a gerrymandering case is there's a three-judge um, court, and then it goes right from the three-judge court who evaluates the, the maps um, and, you know, all of the arguments in favor of the maps, and then it goes straight to the Supreme Court. And so it was actually um, two Trump appointees and an Obama appointee who uh, determined, yes, this map is clearly racially discriminatory considering you know, all of the, all eight um, jingle Senate factors. Um, and, and again, as David noted, so the state is 25% black and uh, one out of seven is something like 14%, right? So 14% you know, representation um, in terms of the map. Um, and the one, one final note is, um, that although in general, right, giving power um, to cities um, produces maps that give that might give a little bit more quote majority minority or majority people of color seats. In this particular case, one of the things that was um, pretty glaring is that there's an area called the Black Belt in Alabama um, that is very rural and that is actually named for the soil, um, but it's named for the soil because of obviously this is where people used to pick cotton enslaved persons, right? There are plantations there, but it is now predominantly black. And so these rural areas, even though other rural areas were given, you know, um, in fairly compact seats, this area of, or, or yeah, compact seats, this particular area was kind of split up in a bunch of different ways conveniently. And so that was another, uh, kind of glaring um, fact about these maps. And with that, I know we're itching for time, so. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> want to take us to our next case? Yeah. Ha Ooh, that loud. <clears throat> Happy to. Yeah, so um, I will very briefly talk about 303 Creative. Um, so this, this is an interesting case. Um, this uh, addresses a, a conflict between the First Amendment's protections for speech on the one hand and the state's interest in enforcing anti-discrimination law on the other hand. So the petitioner in this case, uh, who runs this web design firm called 303 Creative, is uh, Lori Smith. Uh, she argues that because of her religious beliefs, she does not want to do design work, wedding websites, that sort of thing, for same-sex weddings. Now this puts her in conflict with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which enforces a Colorado state law that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against gay people or announcing their intent to do so. Now, uh, the 10th, so, so uh, Smith, uh, took this to the Tenth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit ruled against Smith, though on interesting grounds. It agreed with Smith that her graphic design work um, is, quote unquote, pure speech, the sort of speech that gains the maximum First Amendment protections. Um, but it ruled against her because it held that ultimately the Colorado, the Colorado law satisfied the appropriate test for what happens when government regulation infringes on pure speech. 
strict scrutiny, which we've also already uh, briefly touched upon uh, before. In particular, um, the court held that the uh, amend that the the Colorado law furthered a compelling government interest, which is in this case presenting preventing discrimination against uh, LGBT people, and most importantly that it was narrowly tailored. Um, and now, on this point, the Tenth Circuit held that because Smith's graphic design work was unique, she's particularly good as a graphic designer. Um, it didn't actually matter whether or not there were other graphic designers in Colorado who would be willing to do work for uh, a same-sex wedding because these firms might not do the same sort of job that Smith would do. And there, therefore, because Smith's work was unique, um, the government uh, um, uh, requiring her to do this work was nevertheless narrowly tailored. Okay. So this is the second case in uh, several years pitting First Amendment issues against anti-discrimination law. In 2018, the Supreme Court decided a case called Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop, um, sometimes called the Gay Wedding Cake case, um, in which the court dealt with actually another Colorado uh, law, um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, this time dealing with a baker who didn't want to bake a wedding cake uh, for, for a gay uh, couple again on, on um, uh, uh, religious grounds. Now, that case, uh, everyone was watching really carefully for that, of that case, but it was a little bit of a, a letdown in the sense of actually clarifying the law because the Supreme Court ended up addressing it on quite narrow grounds. Um, it held, in an opinion actually joined by uh, Justices Kagan and Breyer, right, so liberal justices, um, that uh, the, uh, the, the baker should win in this case because the Colorado agency that heard his case was uh, hostile, kind of, excessively so to his religious claims generally, right? At some point they compared uh, his argument to you know, defending the Holocaust. And the court said, look, we're not gonna get to the merits of the First Amendment issue per se here. We're just gonna say, in this case, he didn't get a fair hearing under the First Amendment. So there we go. But it didn't really answer actually anything about the underlying uh, issue. Um, uh, <clears throat> so since 2018, of course, the court has become more conservative. Uh, in particular, uh, Justice Kennedy, who was both a conservative but also, in some sense, the court's most important um, gay rights advocate, right? He wrote the opinion in Obergefell. Um, he's been replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, and uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg has been replaced by Justice Barrett. Uh, and this may be an uh, opportunity then for the court to limit the reach of anti-discrimination law. Uh, now, if the court wants to rule narrowly, um, uh, and, and I, I, I should say, right, it's always it's hard to predict, but I think most people think that um, three or three creative, Laurie Smith will win in this case. The real question is, and how, right? How broadly or how narrowly? If the court wants to rule narrowly, it could emphasize that web design uh, either is particularly expressive, so really emphasize the fact that this is about pure speech, right? Not just about uh, general commercial activity. Um, and it could also reverse the Tenth Circuit on the grounds that Smith's web design services, while unique in certain respects, right? She may be very good at what she does. Um, they're not unique in the relevant sense. There really are other web designers in Colorado and the United States who would be happy to do this sort of uh, wedding. And so this is not like, um, say, a telecommunications monopolist where government regulation might be relevant uh, in that case, right? Um, my sense from reading the kind of commentary is that this part of the Tenth Circuit opinion is generally considered relatively weak, actually, even among those who kind of support uh, uh, support uh, 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 the anti-discrimination law. So if the court wanted to, it could resolve the case on these fairly narrow grounds, and it wouldn't have huge ripple effects, uh, or the ripple effects would be less than they otherwise uh, could be. Um, on the other hand, the court could rule very broadly, making it very difficult for the government to ever limit speech rights uh, for anti-discrimination purposes, right? It could say, you know, corporations, you know, it said corporations have First Amendment speech rights. It could say that really any kind of corporate speech is pure speech for this purpose. The, the court in other cases has already um, shown some skepticism to previous opinions uh, that's tried to limit First Amendment protections for corporate speech. Um, um, 
and uh, you know it could it could rule in a way that would apply um, the First Amendment protections to very large employers and make anti-discrimination law much, much, uh, much, much harder uh, to sustain. It's also notable that this speech, although there's a religion clause element to it because the argument is this violates her, uh, or this goes against her religious beliefs, she's bringing the case under the free speech clause of the First Amendment, not the free, not the, uh, free exercise or establishment clauses. And of course, speech claims are um, inherently broader than religious claims. You don't have to be religious to bring a speech claim. Um, so this has a potential um, to, uh, quite, to limit anti-discrimination law if that's where the court uh, wants to go. Great, thanks, Ellen. And just a couple little points to kind of throw in there, I think, also to give some perspective, especially looking at um, where the court is sitting after Dobbs, right? And we see in the Dobbs concurrence, at least Justice Thomas, um, reads the holding there or would read it much more broadly. So Dobbs, if you remember, in the idea of um, Roe v. Wade and the right to privacy, the right to an abortion, kind of comes to this concept of substantive due process, which is also the basis, the kind of theory that underlies the court's decision in Obergefell, which established a right to same-sex marriage, right? And at least in parts of the decision um, in, in the concurrence there, there was question as to whether or not um, Obergefell will, is, sub, is, is kind of on the line or will be down the road. There were some other justices who wrote, no, don't worry about that, this is different, abortion's different, like don't look at those. But um, you can't help but kind of look at these types of cases, especially seeing with this court and the skepticism for substantive due process and at least what we know a number of the justices feel about the Obergefell decision, to see um, a case like this coming and potentially carving out kind of religious exemptions to, um, to anti-discrimination laws. These are statutory or state um, or federal statutory laws, right? Uh, um, but you know, we may see the court kind of you know, chipping away at, at some of those kind of rights that have been um, established or were at least established before this court came along. So it's something to kind of keep in mind. I also think it has broader implications for public accommodations laws more broadly. So this talks about public accommodation laws as they protect same-sex um, individuals or, or couples um, and or individuals on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, but these are the same laws that um, prohibit places of public accommodations from discriminating on the basis of race or interracial marriage. Um, and so there's a question about how, first, how do they draw the line? How broadly do they make this decision? And then what effects could it potentially have uh, in these other realms that the court, you know, at this point hasn't kind of gotten into yet, but when you look at the reasoning and the basis of their decisions, kind of what the fallout could be. How, you know, might it affect um, somebody, a wedding website designer who refuses to make a website on behalf of an interracial couple down the line? I don't think that that's like extreme to talk about that, even though it's certainly not what is at issue in the case right now, but it's just at least something that I think is important to keep in mind. Um, anybody else have any last minute points on that, and then I'll turn to our kind of final set of cases. So, um, so the first case here, and we have the question presented on the board. Let me tell you, there are like 20 different formulations of the QP, so don't pay too much attention to the to exact words on here. It's a very complicated case with a lot of, um, an important case with a lot of moving pieces. So I'm gonna give a brief overview of kind of what's going on, and at least talk about a few key issues that the court's gonna decide. So this case involves Holland versus Brackeen. It involves the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act, which Congress passed in 1978 in, what, in response to what Congress and tribal nations had viewed as a serious threat to the sovereignty of Native American tribes. 
Um, at that time, it's estimated that about 25% of Native American children had been um, taken from, separated from their families <coughs> and placed with non-Indian families in either foster or adoptive homes. Um, in, when they enacted ICWA, this is um, an abbreviation for the Indian Child Welfare Act, Congress found that one of the contributing factors to these separations was that state child welfare proceedings that often ruled over these foster care and adoptive proceedings, they often didn't account for the cultural and social standards prevailing in Native American communities and families. So in response, Congress passes this statute which established certain federal minimum standards that apply in state child welfare proceedings with respect to the removal of Native American children from their families and placement of those children in foster care or adoptive homes. So as an example, it, the statute creates certain placement preferences, which first says that when you're making a decision about where to place a child, you first look to other members of the child's family, you look to um, other individuals within the, um, the child's tribe, or you look at other, um, other Native American tribes. And then only if you don't place them there might you place them with another family. So what happened here, the facts of this case, is that the state of Texas and seven individuals, which include a Minnesotan couple who wants to foster a child of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. They brought suit arguing that ICWA is unconstitutional on a number of different grounds. They sued the Secretary of the Interior, who's Deb Holland, who also, just as a side note, happens to be the first Native American cabinet sec secretary. Um, and they also charged a number of other people who are charged with enforcing ICWA. Um, four tribal nations intervened in the lawsuit in order to um, also defend the statute. So it resulted ultimately in a fractured decision in the en banc Fifth Circuit. That means the, the panel of the Fifth Circuit heard this decision. The entire, then all of the judges on the Fifth Circuit took the case and considered it again in a very fractured decision that they actually had to write like a summary um, few page decision saying, this is what we hold, you're not gonna be able to tell by just reading these decisions because no one decision has a majority, right? So they issued a summary of their decision, but a handful of issues that are coming up or what the court is gonna have to decide is first, whether Congress had the authority in the first place under the Indian, um, Indian Commerce Clause and other provisions, other constitutional provisions, whether they had the authority to enact ICWA. Um, Another question is whether or not certain provisions of ICWA unconstitutional, unconstitutionally commandeer state officials to carry out the exercise of federal power. For those of you who haven't studied this yet, my con law, we're gonna get there. Um, this is a concept under the 10th Amendment that the federal government can't use state actors in order to kind of carry out federal functions, right? So the question is, for example, the placement preferences or other certain procedures that the statute requires state courts to undertake, whether those violate the 10th Amendment because they, they direct action of state officials and agencies in furtherance of, the, of federal law. Uh, another question is whether or not certain provisions of ICWA violate equal protection, and in particular, whether treatment of what's called an Indian child develop, um, defined in the statute or Indian families are political classifications that are based on tribal affiliation or whether they're race-based classifications. And this is important because if they're political-based affiliations um, based on that the kind of how the, the Constitution identifies um, uh, Native American tribes, 
Then it, the statute is subject to rational basis scrutiny. So we've heard a little bit about strict scrutiny. Rational basis is like the lowest bar scrutiny of like why Congress is doing this, right? You can, as long as they satisfy, kind of have a rational un, um, explanation for why they're classifying children or families on this metric, then they will um, satisfy the Constitution. But if it's a race-based classification, which is what the petitioners, what the families in the state of Texas are arguing, then it's subject to strict scrutiny and it's much harder for the government, for Congress, to, um, to satisfy uh, what's required in order to, over re to reach that hurdle and say, yes, we can make this distinction based on race, right? Um, so those are kind of the, the main, there are a number of other issues um, at, at stake, but I just wanted to flag those. And just as a, taking a step back, this is a hugely important case for a number of reasons. So it has a major impact on trial issues of tribal sovereignty. Um, it's important not only or, you know, for the Native American communities um, and their ability to safeguard against population loss and the continued viability of their communities, right? But there's also a real question about how a finding that all are part of ICWA may then affect other areas of Congress's um, regulation or statutes dealing with tribal relations, um, including those that relate to tribal economic development and land rights, okay? In this case, this is, you know, the state of Texas coming in in what is, a, you know, a, a child, a family law dispute, right? But you have the entire state of Texas. There were other states that were, that are no longer at the Supreme Court, but were active below. You have major law firms and interest groups coming in and playing a part in this case. You can see that there's other stuff going on here outside of kind of the, the basic kind of um, family law issues going on. But what are the impacts <coughs> this is going to have much more broadly on, um, on issues of, of tribal sovereignty? Um, it also represents, like we've been talking um, a handful of times already in this panel, um, that this is just another area of law, like the affirmative action, the voting rights cases, where we're seeing courts striking down certain civil rights laws and programs that are attempting to correct for past discrimination um, in favor of this kind of colorblind approach to equal protection. So um, there's a lot to keep an eye out for, but at least hopefully that gives a sense. Liliana, did you have anything you wanted to add? Or um, yeah, that would be great. Um, and thanks for, I know we're running short on time, but we should still have a lot of time for questions. Um, but so there are a lot, there's a lot going on in these equal cases. Um, but I did want to briefly hold up that yes, there is a white couple in Minnesota who is involved in these cases, but I also wanted to hold up Robin Granshaw, who's Robin, Robin Bradshaw, excuse me, the indigenous grandmother who's trying to keep her granddaughter. Um, and so currently right now, you know, we're talking about a real child who is with her grandmother um, and that there is a couple with whom that, that granddaughter was for a period of time um, before she was three years old. And this decision, right, yes, it impacts all of these different relationships and, you know, there, that this is one, one human interaction, but there are, there are implications for, for a variety of families, right? So when we think about child separation in the context of, you know, immigration, prisons, um, in the context of indigenous families, you know, I also wanted to talk about the background that Betts talked a little bit, right, about how in, before ICWA was passed, um, you know, Congress determined that 25% of indigenous children um, were being placed with um, white families in foster care. 
But before then, we also had boarding schools, right? And so this is a very specific kind of intentional project um, that's been happening in the United States, and that's what's going on in the background. And so that's why ICWA was particularly urgent. Um, and indigenous people, um, you know, obviously there's a significant Anishinaabe and Lakota um, presence here in Minnesota, um, but the, the population is getting sparser, right? And so this was an intentional act to try and keep children with their families um, and to um, kind of support the, continuous, the continuation of indigenous peoples. And so that's operating in the background. Um, and that's, that's all I will add. Although I will also say QP, just in case people didn't know what I meant, question presented. <laughs> Thank you, my jargon. Um, great, any other quick comments on that? Or, uh, I'm gonna, right, so our last, I wanna leave like, like 10 minutes for, for our questions, but um, I'll give a quick summary of this Percoco versus United States case, because it's an interesting criminal case on the docket. Um, involving the scope of the honest services fraud statute. So full disclaimer, I worked on this case before I came to law school when I was at law firm, represent, and I represented the petitioner, um, Joseph Prococo. So um, everything that I'm gonna say is in the public record, but I wanted to make sure that was clear. So long story short, uh, Mr. Prococo was a close aide to Governor Andrew Cuomo, all right? And then when, this was kind of like early on, when the governor was then up for reelection, um, Prococo steps down from his official position and becomes the full-time campaign manager, okay? So during that time in which he was a private citizen who had no formal title or power or salary, he accepted $35,000 from a real estate developer to kind of help that person work through some of the New York state bureaucracy, all right? For accepting that payment, uh, Prococo was charged with honest services fraud and by federal prosecutors and then was convicted by a jury. So typically that concept of honest services fraud comes up when a public official like accepts a bribe or engages in some kind of quid pro quo um, that then you know, they're convicted because they've like violated their duty of honest services to the public that we have for public officials, right? But here Prococo's um, convicted under the theory that even as a private citizen, he still owed a duty to the public because he continued to have this kind of clout this a lot of sway with state agencies and officials as a result of his close relationship with the governor and his prior role in the governor's and his relationship with the governor's family. So the Second Circuit adopted this kind of reliance and control test, which says that a pri private individual may still hold a fiduciary duty to the public if the individual is kind of continue to rely on that person and the person also has some kind of de facto control over agency decision making. So in practice, it's really hard to draw the line. All right, the case raises a, like so many interesting hypotheticals about how the statute could be used by private, um, against private individuals who have close relationships to public officials, like friends of public officials or campaign donors, media personalities. You know, you hear um, people going and having meetings with the president, um, former officials who are now kind of working in a lobbying capacity, even family members of officials like a president's parent or sibling or child, right? Um, as the government would have it, kind of the, the argument on the other side is that like the limit on the application of the statute in these kinds of extreme circumstances are really um, up for prosecutor prosecutorial discretion. This is the idea that like federal prosecutors kind of like trust us, we're not gonna bring it in those kind of extreme cases, right? That's what the limit is. But in the past, the court hasn't been very receptive to that, to kind of leaving that much power in the hands of federal prosecutors. 
And this is interesting, the fact that the court granted the case because it fits a trend of recent decisions where the court has kind of narrowly interpreted federal fraud statutes like this. So there was a case, McDonald versus United States, which kind of narrowly circumscri circumscribed what constitutes an official act for purposes of the federal bribery statutes. You have to engage in official, official act. Narrowly determine what that was. And then you may remember a couple of years ago in the case Kelly versus United States, this involved the Bridgegate scandal um, where the court narrowly interpreted the federal wire fraud statute as requiring intent to unlawfully obtain money and property as through kind of this, this um, the, uh, in order to find that a certain action had violated the statute. So we'll see if that trend kind of like narrowly construing the federal fraud statutes continues in this case. And um, with that, unless anybody wants to jump in, I think we have you know, at least a handful of minutes here for some questions from the audience. And we have a microphone here, so why don't you raise your hand and then someone will bring a hand mic over. Uh, thank you. So specifically for the Morby Harper case, I'm interested in what effect that would have in states like Minnesota. So like for the last five cycles, the, the Supreme Court has drawn the maps, but, but it was because the legislature deadlocked. Um, and so is there still a role if the legislature can't actually pass maps? And then also, I mean, reading literally, that doesn't give any role for the governors either. So does it also mean that like governors can't veto maps as well? Just curious about the implications there. Yeah. You raise an incredibly good question here, because if you take the independent state legislature theory, let's say in its most robust way, then the, the factuals or the counterfactuals that you're posing, I think, come true. You know, the idea of saying that, what well, the legislature gets the final word in trying, drawing district maps, and you could potentially even make an argument at that point to say that this clause of the con U.S. Constitution potentially overrides any state constitutional, let us say, separation of powers or, or, or checks and balances type of provisions. That would be probably the most expansive way of, of, of reading it. But it, but it is, you know, if I can editorialize a little bit here, it, it, it is a, um, at least in my opinion, a, um, a potentially very uh, threatening type of opinion because and in my little bit of history I pointed out here, you know, sort of one of the, one of the hallmark precedents I'm going to say the last 60 years is Baker versus Carr. You know, the idea that we have to bring in the courts to, in some cases, um, um, keep the channels of political participation open, kind of quoting, um, you know, footnote four of Caroline Products, and have them come in and draw the district lines. Because you're right, with the exception of 1990, where a governor in Minnesota couldn't quite count very well, um, and we'll go into that right now, uh, um, they've drawn the district lines of the courts every year since the 1960s. And so while you read this case and people say, well, it's only about partisan gerrymandering. No, I think it's a much broader case in terms of what it potentially can impact at this point because it really would, I think, take the courts out completely from, from second-guessing um, and correcting mistakes made by state legislatures. And it puts us back to where we were with Colgrove versus Green. And as I said to my... My, my con law students you know, last year is that think about what Colgrove versus Green is saying, said to the public. You have a problem with the way the state legislature is drawing congressional lines with the way they're drawing um, state legislative lines. You know what your remedy is? Go talk to your state legislature if you don't like what they're doing. Well, if you happen to be in one of those districts where you've been malapportioned, you don't exactly have a lot of influence. And so I do think there's, there's a... Um, 
um, a problem here. And if I can just editorialize one little bit more here. A couple of years ago, the Supreme Court indirectly addressed the issue of independent state legislatures in the, this is the Arizona um, Free Enterprise Club versus Bennett, where it said that, no, guess what? Um, states, you know, or rather ballot initiatives to create independent redistricting commissions are okay. From my perspective, this independent state legislature is one of these kind of fringe theories of constitutional law that is giving cogency now that a few years ago would never have gotten cogency. Any other questions? Um, I have a question about some of the potential arguments in Holland v. Brockine. So I'm curious what you think, like how legitimate you think, specifically the anti-commandeering and the potential for like the racial um, element of ICWA, and, like how strong you think those arguments actually are, particularly, so one with anti-commandeering, there's been cases in, like out of Western districts um, dealing with this in terms of funding for sanctuary cities and things like that that have gone back and forth in the courts in terms of whether it is anti-commandeering or not. So I'm curious, curious your thoughts on that. And then also with the racial element, considering that tribes are considered sovereign nations, I'm curious how you think they could possibly make the argument that it's a racial distinction and not a, a political one. Sure, I think that the the issue about the commandeering is a difficult one. I mean, if you look at the, at least the Fifth Circuit decision, um, it finds that a lot of the procedural aspects of the, so a lot of what the kind of like the requirements are is that not just um, the placement kind of preferences applying federal law, but there are record keeping requirements and kind of that they have to maintain um, certain and actually go through the process of providing notice so that there's those actions and some of those are ones that the court had a lot of concern over so how is that different from for example just applying the federal law um, and having having judges kind of apply the law as it's stated in a case but then actually having federal officials have to go out so I think that at least under when you're looking at the Fifth Circuit um, and you, you there's an appetite that to find that those cases, that those, at least those aspects of the, um, the different requirements are, you know, a step over that line, you know? So I think that that's kind of where some of the question is. Um, the issue about the equal protection is kind of interesting, at least how the, how the Fifth Circuit came out, which was that the um, designation of an Indian child was found to be political and not subject to strict scrutiny, not a race-based classification, um, because of kind of under this concept of the, you know, the um, relationships that the Constitution has, has created between Congress and the tribal nations. Um, but it did find that the preference for other Indian families was a race-based classification. So it was, you know, in the context of like, regulating the relationship over a specific child, that that was kind of through uh, okay and not subject, it was kind of through the structure of the, the, con the constitutional structure of the Indian Commerce Clause and other provisions. On the other hand, kind of preferencing that if you're not going to um, give the child or place the child with family or with their own tribe, that a preference of other Indian families, meaning other um, families that may be in a different 
community that that was a race-based classification. So that's at least kind of one issue that we'll see play out is whether or not there's going to be a distinction between those kinds of preferences. Um, but that's kind of getting into the nuance of it. If, if, if I could throw in just a quick observation. I know law students have plenty of time on their hands. Um, but if there's a book that I could recommend that everybody should read at least once um, in law school or somewhere, it's called Simple Justice. Um, it's one of the great books ever written. And it's the story of the NAACP. And it's a story of how after Plessy versus Ferguson, where the court ruled that separate but equal uh, um, was okay as a constitutional doctrine, uh, how NAACP formed an organization dedicated to overturning that, and it eventually culminates in Brown versus the Board of Education. And, and the playbook of the NAACP during that point was, was a combination of social movements, um, um, political protest, in litigation. And the reason why I mention that is that it was essentially what about a 60-year pattern to be able to over 60-year long game to overturn Plessy. What we're seeing, I think, happen last term and what's happening this term is long game. And what I mean by long game, on a variety of issues, whether it's about race, whether it is about um, issues such as civil rights laws, a whole bunch of different things. There has been a variety of groups who have been really sort of working for a while to say, we don't like affirmative action, or we don't like the Indian Child Welfare Act, or fill in the blank, et cetera, et cetera, and combine social movement with a court that seems to be receptive to those types of arguments. And that's the recipe for what we're seeing right now, what's happening before the court right now. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that's absolutely correct. <laughs> um, so, you know, funnily enough, in the seminar for our uh, for the Racial Justice Law Clinic last week, we read a piece by Richard Delgado where um, it's from 1993, I think, and it talks about how there are social movements that basically try and return not just to Plessy, but even to Dred Scott. And Dred Scott, you know, and that's very alarming, but in some ways that's that's true, right? In the sense that if there are efforts that undermine your citizenship, and, and just because I'm not sure that you've all read it, right? Dred Scott is the decision that says, um, Dred Scott was an enslaved person, and he argued that because he went to Missouri that he was no longer uh, an enslaved person, that he would be free. They said, no, 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 you don't even have citizenship. You, don't even, you can't even bring suit in this court. Um, and so not to be completely alarmist, um, but that there are efforts, right, that are trying to um, take us back um, to some pretty, pretty alarming places, right? Um, and so it remains to be seen how narrowly or how broadly these decisions um, get decided. Um, and on the ICWA point, um, I did want to go back just for a second, right? Sometimes um, it's interesting because, you know, as you read cases, you learn in law school, there are sometimes, I think, legal fictions, right, in the arguments that are made. Um, and I think, you know, and again, this is, this is my opinion, sometimes it would be refreshing to be able to say, right, that the categorization of, um, you know, an indigenous person is both racial and political, but those political considerations, right, may win out because they are a sovereign nation and so they get to determine what to do with that racial classification, right? But we're not getting into those nuances and, it, and it's becoming a binary either or kind of decision, right? Um, 
And so that's where we kind of get into trouble, but hopefully even if it is a racial classification, um, right, like I might argue that um, the policy of keeping indigenous children, and, and that is what's being made here, right, in the alternative, right? In the alternative, if this is not a political classification and it's a racial one, then Obviously, it's a very compelling interest to keep indigenous children with, um, with either their families or with other indigenous tribes um, for the continuation of those, of those peoples. All right, well, we are over time, but I <laughs> wanna thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, hope that you follow the term and um, you know, maybe we'll see you back here later on to discuss what they actually come up with. <laughs>